Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 371 and the return of episode 33 guest, the director of percussion studies at the University of Missouri St. Louis, or UMSL as it's known, founder of Spectrum, and frequent clinician and freelancer Matthew Henry. We'll get to Matt shortly. But first up, PASIC. I had a great time. I saw lots of really good stuff. I'll be talking about PASIC more throughout the next bunch of weeks from what I saw, but it was always a worthwhile experience to attend. I thank all of those who chatted and took selfies with me, and for all those who had great things to say about either the podcast or the experience they had being on the show. I am always appreciative of that. Next up, Marching and Mini Mizzou. The band continues to do very well. We're in the midst of our super busy November, where we're inundated with performances for volleyball, football, and men's and women basketball. We're asking a lot of these students, and they are stepping up, which is both inspiring and fantastic. And it's also great when the football team is now 8-2, and two, the best record in a decade, and the women's volleyball team is the best they've been in four years under head coach Don Sullivan, who arrived earlier this year. And shout out to Don and her family, who were kind enough to buy the pep band pizza for the match this past Sunday. Really cool. And let's get back and return to our time with Matt Henry. As mentioned earlier, Matt is a return guest. He appeared on episode 33 in the spring of 2017, very early in this show's run. So, lovely to have him back on. Matt's the director of percussion studies at UMSL and has been a fixture on the St. Louis percussion scene for a long time, as he'll recount and update here. You'll also get to hear a lot about his life, and we'll close, as we usually do, this time talking a lot about great music and books, and some other fun stuff. Matt's also here because he presented at PASIC this year, doing a session called Settling the Score, where he discussed the challenges of working with music that is supposedly based in certain parts of the world and the challenges for percussionists to perform them culturally correctly. I'd caught a version of this session at the Missouri Music Educators Association conference not too long ago and found it really well done, and I'm sure it went the same way at PASIC. Unfortunately, I was already back home for earlier said football team. But so awesome to have him back. So let's get to our full conversation. Here we go. We recorded this over Zoom on October 18th, 2023. And it begins right now. This year's presentation is for the Education Committee. And I titled this one when I submitted it, Settling the Score. Colon, you know, they like that colon. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, culturally in, uh, informed adaptation of published percussion parts, non-Western percussion specifically in chamber music, orchestra, band, choir. Yeah. Tell me the genesis. Why do you need to present this? Well, in my experience, you know, the last 15 years, I guess, I've kind of devoted to study of uh, Afro-Cuban traditions, folkloric, and the history therein, as well as Jimbe Orchestra, so Malenke ethnic group primarily from West Africa. 
had a lot of clinics and presentations at schools or people calling me, you know, can you help out with this jazz band piece interpretation? Can you help out with, we need a percussionist for the Allstate Choir or even at the university where I teach, you know, we're doing concerts where there's a choir piece that calls for djembe or some congas or it's Cuban or or African, uh, which is kind of troublesome because Africa is very, Latin. very big. Or Latin. Or Latin. Right? Yeah. Or Latin. Yeah. Um, and I've just seen a growing uh, gap in music educators' kind of knowledge about what they should do. Not the not the need for it. I mean, the need is there and the want and the desire to do pieces that include uh, cultural inference, right? Um, but when the parts, they get the parts in and they're not quite sure what to do or they're not even quite sure what some of the instruments are that are listed there, uh, first and foremost. So I've done a couple of presentations at the statewide level, the Music Educators Convention, specifically one for jazz band, you know, last year. What do you do with that third, the second percussionist, second or third percussionist on these quote-unquote Latin charts? And examined a lot of pieces that were out there and editors' picks on these websites and just saw lots of kind of discrepancies between what the piece is listed as and when I look at the score, what it actually is, you know. That is a thing that that I've kind of become more passionate about the past few years is is making sure that in this drive of of inclusivity that we're in these days, which is great, and the diversity, equity, inclusion part of things, how can we, as the users of this published music, um, you just make it more culturally informed and culturally sound? You know, how how can we do that on the user end? Because a lot of times we're supposed to be able to trust the publishers and the composers and all of those things. Um, but it's out, you know, we, we can't always, and I've seen evidence of that. So I guess that was the big push here is not to convict anybody, but to, to, you know, to, to say, how can, you know, we want to have all these pieces that include quote unquote world percussion and cultures and pay homage to the cultures. How can we make sure that we're really doing that and not appropriate on the appropriation side, you know, and so make sure that, that we pay a little more respect to, to uh, the cultures that are trying and supposedly being represented in these published works. When, when someone gets a part and they are asked, like, let's say on the Latin side, yeah, you know, what, what's the most common thing that either maybe you see if you adjudicate or when you, when you watch other bands or things you're like, I bet they could, they could use my help. Well, I think one of the things that I see just specifically with the publications, probably the, the most ubiquitous mistake that's made is calling something uh, a Latin chart. And people think that that means Caribbean. But when I look at the bass line and the drum part notated and the horns and, and the piano part, it's Brazilian. It's a samba or it's a bossa nova. Uh, and those musics and cultures are quite different. And um, that's the biggest one that I see out there. And when I did that specifically jazz band arrangement one, that was all over the place where the bass lines, you know, this isn't a cha-cha, it's a, it's a bassa. So I see that. And I, I think in general, it's just, you know, as drum set players, we have books out there that, you know, give us one bar representations of here's what you play on a mambo. Here's right. what you play on a cha-cha. Here's what you play on a samba and a bassa. And so we have one measure 
that we play over and over, right? right. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and we try to fit it in with the hits here and there. So I think the biggest thing for us as educators to impart to young players is that uh, we think about these as more of a fluid concept idea. What type of uh, language are you speaking on the drums? And people talk about that with jazz all the time, right? With comping on the snare drum and, you know, we got to be able to improvise bass drum and snare drum and get these hits in there. And we have to do that in the other styles too. Uh, so that's the biggest thing for me is that we're not playing one bar rhythms over and over that we can kind of flex and we have different ideas uh, moving forward. So when I talk to young drum set players, that's the biggest thing is, is first and foremost, what are you trying to play? And secondly, is what you're doing providing comfort for the band? You know, that's a lot of, well, the, the second thing is when you think about quote unquote Latin charts, everybody always thinks, oh, it's syncopated like crazy. I got to play this really difficult thing and incorporate these toms and, and do all this stuff when that doesn't provide comfort for the band, when they're also trying to interpret some rhythms maybe they haven't seen before and articulations and, you know, the syncopation that's included in their part. So that's the thing for me is, first of all, we need to back down the what we think of as the complex things and the busyness that we're playing and parse that down and, and, and make sure that we're providing rhythmic support that's comfortable. That's probably the biggest thing, yeah. And the second one, you know, a lot of jazz bands and, and ensembles in general have more than one drum set player. So when they get a Latin chart or something like that, they want to have a shaker or some maracas or they have, you know, they go back to the percussion cabinet and they just dig something out. They're like, oh, yeah, let's get some toys, right, <laughs> and, yeah. and start playing them. So uh, I guess it's, for me, too, one of my big pushes in these presentations that I'm giving is, not only do you have to think about the rhythms that you're playing, but you have to think about what instrument you're choosing. So if this is under the Brazilian kind of scope, which is generally sambas and bosses, you should not be using maracas or a Cuban guiro or a cowbell. You know, you should use a go-go bells and tube shakers and maybe even a triangle in there or a pandero, or, you know, a hapique, something like that that gives us the entrance of the sound. Um, and generally speaking, you know, in the percussion cabinets, there's cowbells and there's probably going to be a set of a go-go bells and a guiro, maybe a cabasa and tube shakers and maracas. And, and so when should we choose those for which specific style? That's the other thing. Yeah. Now, on the West African side, my guess would be that more of that would probably be on the choir. If yeah. Like if you're playing with choir and there's like an African percussion stuff yeah. so what are the what are the kinds of the roadblocks or things that people will just kind of try to do yeah well i think that you know the djembe has become the most popular west african drum yeah subsequently it's spread out to become the most popular african drum right and so that's when people think okay this is african let's get that djembe that's over in the corner of the choir room you know they have a remo djembe or an lp djembe or something like that that's there let's do some stuff with that which is is fine but a lot of times some of this stuff is south african or different ethnic groups that aren't or even different places in west africa be from ghana right yeah. so we might want to choose different instruments there Sometimes we have to just do the best we can. 
right? And, that, and I'm going to talk about that in this clinic too. There's sometimes there's not a whole lot that you can do, um, but we can certainly read the description of the piece. What does it say? Is it referencing a specific culture or is it just say African dream? And there's no, you know, it doesn't say this is based Latin off carnival. Of, right, right, right. Something like that. Um, and maybe it doesn't even say anything about Africa at all. It just says optional percussion. So at that point, what you know, maybe there's not, not much we should do. Right. For me, it's the focus on the pieces that specifically cite a culture, an ethnic group or a country, uh, an area. And then at that point, we should be making more educated choices as to as to maybe how we adapt the parts or the instruments that we choose. So as it says, this is um, a song from Mali, and the instruments included in the score are bass drum and congas. Maybe we let's let's alter that, right? I know the composer said bass drum and congas, but this says Mali. The text yeah. is from, you know, maybe some sort of Malian folk song, supposedly, who knows? But we can then okay. Let's don't let's play djembe instead of congas, and maybe let's play dunun or some type of low tom sound rather than a big boomy bass drum. You know, to, to make make the dununs more present. So a lot of times it's it's a matter of having the knowledge first and foremost to know what instrument families you should be choosing from, um, and then secondly, how can you comfortably make decisions to alter the piece to make it entertaining still and educational, you know, and sometimes that's having a conversation with the audience before the piece goes or putting something in the program notes, or there's a lot of ways that this can be done without completely disrespecting the composition, you know, and the composer. Yeah. Um, for me though, honestly, making decisions as performers and players, we do that all the time in the Western classical tradition. Do you play a, a thumb roll or a shake roll? Do you play a closed, do you play closed drags, open drags? Like what's the, you know, do you, is it supposed to sound like more of a, a marching snare drum? Maybe you'll play open drags or orchestra, you'll play close. So you make those choices a lot. We make choices about hardness of mallets, depending on context, you know? And um, I mean, we, there are some pretty hardcore people out there that, that play period instruments. Yeah. So should we play Beethoven with timpani pedals? I mean, I do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I want that, right? We have we have technology and information and things that have changed that we utilize all the time. Um, and I think that it's the the quote unquote world music that hasn't caught up yet because historically that hasn't been focused on. Right. Right. So in the last twenty years, there's been a real big more push with more people going out and studying with culture bearers and writing grants to to understand this music and teach it and all those things. So now we're really at the point where I think we need to hold uh, publishers more accountable. We need to hold composers more accountable. Um, but we, the, how how to start that is at the level of performance. You know, I'm glad you brought up the publishers and composers part because obviously. That gets into not just representation, but at times appropriation. Yeah. And, you know who's writing, and do you feel like as a if a performer, if you get a piece and you're and it seems like there's a mismatch between who wrote it and this yeah. culture, that yeah. what do you, what do you feel like is the kind of the right move in that situation? I mean, that kind of gets a little hard, you know, and that gets gets a little sticky here too because. In that presentation I did for the Missouri Music Educators State Conference, 
I had a spreadsheet that listed all the top editors' picks from the top publishers' websites and I remember music yeah. distributed. Yeah, oh yeah, you were there. I was there. And, yeah, it was a fantastic. And some, and some yeah. pretty well-known composers and arrangers. <clears throat> and I cited, you know, in red, like this is a problem in this piece. And people know that. People know these composers and arrangers. And again, I'm not trying to convict out here, but we need to be making some of these adjustments on our end. And how, how do you handle it? I mean, one is is you don't buy that piece. Secondly, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot of pieces out there in the research I've been doing the last couple of years for these presentations. I mean, I came across one the other day that's on a major publisher's website that's called Jungle Jive. Wow. And it's just <laughs> like, to unpack what? that, that is, title. This, is this still <laughs> happening? Like, or do we have this out here? You know, or uh, it's just like these titles that sometimes make a play on. Um, um, there was one for Jasmine. I can't remember now, but um, like Gringo Burrito or something <laughs> like that, you know, and it's <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Wow. So I think that what we should do is we should seek out composers and arrangers that we can tell have knowledge. And yeah. so yeah. through these presentations, I've found some really great representations of people that are doing really good stuff out there. And it could be chamber music. It could be orchestras, could band, choirs, uh, jazz ensembles. You know, uh, you come across these pieces and we can share it. And we can share that information. Say, hey, maybe instead of looking at these 10 composers and arrangers that everybody knows, check out Michelle Fernandez. She's out of right. Miami, like doing this great stuff. And and you know, all these other people that are that are composing different pieces. And you can tell by looking at the notes and how the piece is composed and the specifics and the percussion parts, specifically, the terminology that's maybe used in there. Wow, this person kind of really knows what they're doing and that person is accessible you can email them right you know reach out to them and say hey I, this is really interesting in this piece of music what's going on it's not like somebody that's just churning out arrangements and churning and churning and maybe that was a bit convoluted of an answer <laughs> but, oh. but yeah yeah no i i i think you you did well with that um thanks man i appreciate yeah. it some uh, people came up to me afterwards and were like man this piece that you cited, like I, I, I love that piece, and and you you're saying it's wrong. I'm saying, well, I'm just saying there's some cultural dissonance between what's supposedly represented and what's on the page. Right. I'm not trying again. I'm not trying to <laughs> like convict people. I'm yeah, just yeah. presenting the facts. You make the choice for yourself. But well, I remember I was trying to remember, and I'm glad you said Michelle Fernandez's name because I remember yeah. that we you talked about her a lot and showed examples of kind of. How she's do how she's very clearly put thought into yeah how to how to play and how to accompany the works that she's doing yeah uh, in the ways that you are it, you know on the education side because you said this is an education presentation was there anything specific in the charge of what you what basic what PAS wants uh, for this type of presentation that makes it either different or you were adjusting things to make it fit. No, I mean, I think I submitted um, to the education committee. I, I submitted two clinics this year. I usually, when I submit to PASIC, I do two, you know, one for maybe the world percussion side that's more of a 
a playing clinic or a demonstration clinic or something like that, and then one for the education, which is more informational. And um, so the education one came through this year, and I think it's clear that's what they wanted. They accepted it on the description and and what I was saying in it. Um, I think a lot of people, when I've talked to about what the what the topic is and and they're like, oh, man, this is so needed because I'm not the I mean, I'm not alone in these experiences. You've experienced it. Everybody at every university that that is a percussion instructor has experienced it. When the choir comes up with this piece and you look at the parts like, oh, gosh, these parts are super cheesy. We could we could do something to make it better. Um, and I think that's what we need to do. And of course, jazz bands, they all the time, right? They, you know, they have all the, the swing charts and they might have a funk chart and chart and then they want a Latin chart. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so they put it in there, uh, to include it. And I commend people for including that and wanting to do it. And, and this is just kind of about the push to make things better. And I think that's what PAS wants. You know, I mean, we have the committee, the the diversity, equity, inclusion committee now. And we, you know, we have all of these things that it's clear we as a group want to make these changes and we want to make things better. So I think that was probably what was attractive about it. It's not a clinic promoting me or what I've been doing or my performing, which is not necessarily bad. But this sure. is, a you know, it's more of a clinic to, to give information out there that people can take with them and say, OK, this is how we can make pieces better when we come across a piece that has um, a specific culture cited we can look at the parts and we can look at you know what's going on in the score and we can say okay maybe we'll this kind of looks like cuckoo from um you know djembe orchestra traditions yeah, yeah. or mm-hmm. or it kind of looks like this is more cuban uh feeling and it feels more like a cha-cha let's incorporate some of those instruments and and do it and and maybe talk to the audience beforehand that you know we we're including some more instruments from this culture for your enjoyment and edification <laughs> you know like yeah yep. i'm planning to have some physical handouts and it's going to be all available for the qr code that people can take and reference and that's the kind of the point of this is is to demonstrate some things in person uh and talk about how Everybody there can go home and they can, you know, look at these scores and and the things that I'm looking at, which just aren't necessarily just the percussion part. Sometimes it's the it's the context as well. And they can come back and reference, you know, say, okay, so we have these maybe three options for djembe orchestra music. And I'm going to give them some stuff from uh, respected and vetted sources that you can go back and look at this. Here's one with that's trip two that are triplet based, two that are binary. And if you pull any of those parts out of the binaries, now you're much closer to representing that culture than you would have been if you just pulled it out of thin air, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the first step is giving people resources that are vetted, that they know they can count on that are legit. And, and that's the other thing too. There's a whole lot of stuff out there uh, in our information age that, that YouTube is a wonderful place, but it's also the worst place in the world at the same time. You know? right. Yeah. If you look up how to play congas on YouTube, careful now. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I, I had you on, I think in 2017, you were an early, one of the early episodes 
I was an uh, early adopter. That's, that's, yeah, you're early adapter. Yeah, you you were you were on the friend list when I was like, right, hey, right and, exactly. And, and, and then that list uh, vanished faster than I expected, and I had to adjust yeah. it. So, but look uh, how it's expanded, man! You've been doing some really great stuff. Like, uh, I mean, so many episodes and so many people. You're doing a great job, man. I'm uh, proud thanks. to know you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. So what I want to do is because I, I have a full episode with you, which I'll link into the, the show notes for this. I do want you to, if you wouldn't mind, just giving kind of a thumbnail sketch uh, where you grew up and kind of your schooling and then tell, talk about your current job at UMSL. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Southern Illinois, Carbondale, Illinois. It's about six hours South of Chicago for anybody that doesn't know Illinois. Um, it's a college town, Southern Illinois University. Uh, Carbondale is there. Went to high school, played in drumline, played in concert band, jazz band. Went to SIU in Carbondale for a year and a semester. Then I transferred out to University of Houston to study with Marvin Sparks down there. He got a job in St. Louis shortly after I had transferred there at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. So I just followed him back here. Uh, it worked out well. He is now back in Houston, so he left St. Louis. Uh, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in music performance from the University of Missouri-St. Louis in 99, taught public school for three years, and then uh, in Saint, went in back. St. Louis? In St. Louis, yeah, Clayton High School here in St. Louis, and was playing and gigging you know, around uh, the city still at that point, orchestral gigs and opera and stuff like that and went to uh, Webster University for my master's in orchestral performance. And 2003, I was hired at UMSL as adjunct, University of Missouri-St. Louis as adjunct percussion instructor. And I've been there for 20 years now. So um, been played a lot. St. Louis has been really great to me. Um, I've kind of been known as the, the conga guy or, you know, uh, the the Afro-Cuban and now Malenke um, ethnic group, West African, when my research has kind of folded into into those twos and the Yoruba ethnic group and Bata drumming and things like that. But I played a lot of operas. I play in a Santana tribute band called Black Magic, the Santana Experience. So I get to pay homage to my friends, Raul, that was in that band forever. That's That's been a lot of fun. I play percussion in a group called the Pliadors, which is kind of like snarky puppy, big, um, but more focused on the pop side of that rather than the kind of technical mathematical side. And I have a, a, a sextet that I lead called the Agbara sextet. It's an Afro-Cuban Latin jazz sextet. And I am the drum set player at the Muni. I won that audition last year. So the Muni is the largest outdoor theater in the country and the longest i think where it's 105th season they just celebrated Ten thousand seats we did i played five shows there this summer i, I feel very fortunate to play as much as i do and um, to have taught at a university for for 20 years and have taken those students to the state convention a couple times and you know presented at PASIC here and there and i i feel great about the colleagues that I have in Missouri and you and Megan and Alex and every, you know, I mean, um, man, Missouri's and, and Missouri this year, the chapter of the year. Yeah. PBS, right, man. That's great. Yeah. 
that's that's the Flanagans right there. They that's the Flanagans, man. Represent. <laughs> where, well, I wonder where'd they go to college? Oh yeah, University of Missouri St. Louis. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> <laughs> Ring the bell. I can't take credit for all that though. They had some. They had some yeah. other great, great teachers. You know, my colleagues yeah. and everything. But oh, that that's hilarious. And I have two two kids. My son now is in graduate school at um, Columbia College in Chicago, doing arts management. He went to IU, was a member of their percussion department there. Performance degree. My daughter's a senior in high school at Kirkwood High School. And singing and, and going to college somewhere next year hasn't quite decided yet. Well, one thing I definitely want to ask you about, because uh, I, th- I think I talked to you about this sometime in the last couple of years. It appeared from the outside to be there are a number of changes going on at your school. Yeah. Um, if you Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the the pandemic, you know, hit everybody took a, a pretty big hit there. And right before that happened, we had uh, the Jazz Studies, the birth of the Jazz Studies program, funded by the Stewart Family Foundation here in St. Louis. Um, they are huge philanthropists, and they fund the Muni and the Symphony and Jazz St. Louis and the Sheldon and all these different places. The pandemic hit. The structure of that funding went sideways for whatever reason, <laughs> you know, sure, the ins yeah. and outs of that. That's yeah. that's above my pay grade. And and so then the jazz studies department kind of was taken away because it wasn't funded anymore. Uh, we lost our director of bands before that. You know, so there's been a lot of kind of hits that we took. This is sort of was the perfect storm to get enough kind of wonder and question out there in the state, like, oh, what's happening at Umsol? You know, because uh, at, at Mizzou, you know, they've got a brand new bill. You know, you're there. It's beautiful. You know, all the funding. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the the top of the food chain as far as state-funded Missouri schools and got the big football and the hospital and, you know, all this stuff there. So when you think about the arts, and I think when the system thinks about arts in the city, they don't think about Umsol. They think about Mizzou. You know, University of Missouri itself and Kansas City, right, with the conservatory there. So all that to say that um, things are looking on the bright side for us. We have renovations that are absolutely happening. We're getting a brand new percussion studio with practice doors and practice rooms that you can roll a five octave around corners through doors. You can get a 32 inch drum, you know, nice. yeah. through the doors. And, and that's what, you know, when I went and I think I was in there. Uh, walking maybe with Megan or it was Allstate or something um, years ago when they when they did that um, construction there. I was like, yes, this is what you need. These big doors and wide hallways and, you know, all that stuff. So, um, and I've been there for 20 years. You know, I, I, I feel good about what I've done there at the University of Missouri and, and my position um, and all the students that have come through there that are now professionals playing and teaching and doing all those things. And I'm still, you know, I'm still there. I have two lecture courses that I teach, Popular Music in America, um, and one that I designed called Drumming Cultures of the World, which average about 100 students a semester in them. Uh, so popular courses there. I really enjoy that. And I feel like uh, things are moving in the right direction now. You know, we had a, a pretty pretty big downside. And when the bad news spreads, mm-hmm. it spreads a lot quicker than than good news. Yeah. 
you know, so it's kind of hard to come back from that. And, and I've talked to a whole lot of people like, man, is the music department closed at Umsel? It's like, no, it's not closed. You know, we're, we're moving, you know, we're moving forward, but I mean, it's understandable, you know, they, they heard things and, and, yeah. uh, when you see the funding that gets pulled, it's like, that's a eyebrow raising moments for a lot of people like, Whoa, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But the St. Louis Symphony is on campus this year, for two years now performing in the Two Hill Performing Arts Center because right. Powell Symphony Hall is getting renovated. So yeah. there's a lot more people on campus, and you know we're, we're pushing back. We've got the lobby activated with students playing before concerts and an UMSL music there. And so there's a lot of people coming through, a lot of traffic saying, whoa, wow, this is a great performing arts center, and there's a music department at UMSL, and look, there's their students playing. You know, so So we're still pushing. We're still fighting. Yeah. The courses you develop, does that, is that just always part of your load? And then you have the lessons and all the ensembles and all the kind of the studio stuff. Yeah. So the way that they've kind of vacillated back and forth, sometimes they had done it on, you need to teach, you know, 12 hours a semester. Then they went to, well, you're responsible for 180 student credit hours, which means you got to have this amount of enrollment in the class. So it doesn't matter how many classes you teach, right? As long as you make enough money for the university, I I just interpreted yeah. for the layperson. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or the department, so that other teachers can do different. Th- yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So those two courses, you know, I'm at like 600 student credit hours of course you are <laughs> right so right. so those are and they're you know they're they're the one drumming cultures that i developed from the ground up satisfies the campus's cultural diversity requirement so when people see that you know it's a flashy type whoa drumming cultures yeah. of the world yeah i think i'll do that instead of you know an art history course mm-hmm. you know not, again not downing them, but you know, right. in our business, we we can make things really interesting. A po- yeah. history of popular music in America. I mean, you you team teach the jazz history of yeah. jazz. You know, I mean, that's it's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, everybody consumes music, so we should be using right. that to our advantage. You know? Absolutely. And so, yeah, it works out works out well. And yeah, ensembles and and lessons and you know all that stuff too. But I don't have any other uh, percussion pedagogy. Sure. Um, but not any other, no music theory, no other stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd spend a lot of time just kind of sitting in the corner trying not to be noticed these days. You know, I'm just like. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. You find me in the pit at the Muni. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I know. And I know at, I think this happened soon after I had you on, you started a program spectrum. Yeah. 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 So that was after. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was. So, I think you were in development when. Probably. I was probably raising the money still yes. or something like that. Yeah. 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 So Spectrum. Um, that is. Uh, I haven't boosted it back up to full capacity yet after the the pandemic. So, um, but I think next year we're going to be running probably a brand new full crop of people, and so that's basically focuses on bringing uh, West African and Afro-Cuban drumming to students in middle school and high school. It's a free program. We would we met on Sundays, um, which also can be difficult, you know, Sunday afternoons. I ran into a lot of uh, people saying, well, we had marching band all weekend and Sunday afternoons are hard. That's when we catch up on homework, you know, yeah. especially in the fall. 
So I think I need to re kind of re kind of think that schedule. But it was great, and we we got together. I had three different crops of students before the pandemic hit, so I would get nominations from local band directors and and percussion instructors. I provided each student with a djembe that was carved in Guinea, West Africa, from the Wula Drum Company, and uh, practice conga that LP makes. You know, so I work with Wula Drum, and LP is one of the companies I endorse. And so we would do that, and then we'd go out and do performances at schools or the St. Louis Public Library or Black History Month performances. Um, we played some events for the Cardinals. Um, they're uh, Redbird rookies, so they had you know kind of their youth league, and we did we did some stuff for them. And the idea behind that was to get students together from different school districts, because I saw that I was going out to individual schools, and like so I would go out to the county or in the city, and I would do a presentation there. And those kids, I know that they know they're kind of different districts, but I wanted to get students together from all these different districts. And they could see that, oh, wow, we have something in common. So kids from St. Louis City uh, with people from the county or Ladue or Clayton, and it worked. You know, these people are like, dang, we can, I know somebody from St. Louis City now. And, you know, they had, would never go friend somebody from St. Louis City and, and vice versa. Not because they don't necessarily want to, but because the means aren't there. There's no reason to do that. They live in this area in their school district. They go to school there. They go to football games there. They shop there. They do all their stuff there. They soccer practices, band. So um, the feedback that I got from parents and the students was exactly what I hoped it would be, you know, which is bringing students together. We do these performances and outreach. They learn something at the same time. They take it back to their schools. And, you know, like the clinic I'm doing at PASIC this year is, I inserted basically knowledge into these students and then they inserted it into the choir concert when they had to play djembe or to jazz band when they had to play congas. And so that was a way of me of kind of like, wow, I can plant these seeds here, spread them out, and then that's a better way to do it, you know. And and in addition to doing presentations and, of course, stuff like that where a lot of people come. But, yeah, Um, and I had a whole lot of support from people, raised the money to – buy all the drums, uh, you know, and did it myself. And pandemic hit and the nonprofit status went by the wayside, you know, like that was intense time. So I'm still thinking about a plan to get back on top of all of that stuff and and get some people in to help too, because it was just me by myself. So that was every weekend on a Sunday afternoon that I'm doing, you know, it's like, woo, that's a commitment, man. But still, you know, it was worth it, definitely. I, it's great to hear that you you know part of the 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 goal was being served. It sounds like when, oh, yeah. when students would go through the program, they the adults in their lives would see that uh, yeah. they would hopefully get a good experience out of it. It sounds like they were actually applying this yeah. uh, in an outside setting. Yeah, and, and a few of them went to universities where they continued to play and even took their skills into that program and inspired, you know, that program to maybe, oh, wow, we can kind of build this up a little bit. Um, Shane down at SEMO, um, he bought some Wula drums, some djembes, and some dununs, and one of the students, Anthony, went down there um, and 
they were doing some djembe stuff and Anthony was able to play djembe solo. So that's a lot of times the hardest part. Like as a as an instructor, we can put things on the stage, but it's hard to find a student that can play solo. So a lot of times we have to do it. Right. Until the students get good enough to do it themselves. You know, I mean, yeah. that happens, you know, sometimes it happens in xylophone rags. It's like, okay, sure. I, I know this rag from a long time ago. You guys learned this part. This is how we're going to get it on stage this semester. Yeah, I feel really good about about that and knowing that it it worked, the idea that I had. And I just got so tired of of seeing so many people out talking diversity, equity, inclusion and doing nothing about it. Right. You know, they might write a put a post up on Facebook and they might, you know, <clears throat> put a letter out and say we condemn this stuff. Yeah, but what are you really doing? Right. And so I realized I should be doing more. And if I can catch these kids at a young age and teach them about cultures other than their own, the world's going to be a better place because, you know, their, their school's not doing it. The parents aren't doing it. And again, not convicting them. The parents and the schools have a lot to do. Right. But when we as um, educators and especially from a, a, a seat of privilege that we sit in have a skill set and a knowledge base that we can share, I think it's imperative that we do so. We make it a lasting change, you know, a difference. And we do that in the classroom, but we can also do it elsewhere, you know? Right, yeah. You know, on that side, and because a lot of what you're talking about through not just Spectrum, but also through, you know, your presentation is about, you know, the inclusion, diversity, equity side. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering what you... If 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 things in have impacted you in different ways than the ways you were already thinking about it, because a lot of what you've said has been part of your life for a long time. Yeah. Um, because of the various uh experiences you've had and some of the teachers you've had and all that stuff. Sure. And I'm just wondering, you know, if there's anything that's in the last five, six years that you've kind of has supplemented that information, has reinforced, or you've kind of learned as well. In that space, we need to advance from inclusion into belonging. We have the proverbial kind of circle that cut people out, and we're trying to include them, but yeah. they also need to belong here. And so, for for people to belong, um, I really think that the education system needs a revamp. I truly believe that that if we teach young people truly about cultures other than their own earlier in life. And we started doing that in the sixties, like maybe 1968, mm-hmm. you know, that went along with civil rights act and all that stuff. If we yeah. actually did that in schools, we wouldn't be dealing with what we see in the country right now. There's no way. Right. Because we would have adults that think differently. Yeah. That feel differently. And, but in order to do that, you have to do it across the board. Right. And that's the hard part, you know, I think for us, um, I'm glad that there's, that there's a, a real push towards that these days, the diversity and equity and inclusion. And I want there to be belonging. I think everybody that's on that train also wants there to be belonging. Mm-hmm. And we have to find ways to make it last. I think that that process can be really uncomfortable Yeah, for people in places of privilege, especially that look like you and me. Um, What I've learned is that I don't 
I don't take offense to um, when people say, you know, the white man did this and the white man did that. What I've learned is, yeah, they're not talking about me. They're talking about the other ones, the older ones, you know, like that history. And I acknowledge that history. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think we have to we have to acknowledge it, but we have to come up with a way not to argue and to move forward. Like, how can we make a difference with it? You know, not be I think it's hearing that. Yeah, I think it's the people that take offense. It's like, man, you should examine that. Yeah. You know, if you're offended by somebody saying that white people did this to black people. And that's the terminology they use. I think they yeah. could use better terminology, you know, sure. Eurocentric and Afrocentric. But um, if you're offended by that, then you really haven't thought about history, the truth about history. Right. You know, I'm not I'm not offended when people say that. And I think it's it should it's the same way why, you know, when people talk about um, men this might be, this is getting off topic, but I guess, you know, it's Pete's percussion podcast. You, you can keep what you want to keep. Sure. We talk yeah. about men being aggressors in society and mm -hmm. toxic masculinity and all those things. It doesn't offend me when people say that because I'm not a practitioner of that. I know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's like, yeah, I get it. We should find a way to make that change and educate young men differently about boundaries and all kinds of stuff. And I think yeah. that goes along with our education system. There's a lot of different things we should be including in, in schools. The financial disparity between districts that I see, this is actually part of why I did Spectrum too, you know. There's kids that where my daughter goes to school in Kirkwood, everybody gets a MacBook Air. 100% of the students get a MacBook Air. Yeah. And there's schools in the city that the principal doesn't even get a MacBook Air. Yeah. So what are we doing? Right? Do you really think this isn't a problem? And the problem is not vouchers. The problem is fixing the funding in the education system. Right. But yeah. who's going to do that? It's not you, Pete. It's not me. Yeah. It's got to be the government and the and the people that we elect. But if those people aren't educated differently from the 60s and 70s, it's not going to change, you know? So to me that's that's been the biggest focus and and we can argue all we want. You can talk about Democrat and Republican. You can talk about all that stuff. None of them have made the change that needs to be made in the last 40 years. Not one. Right. Democrat or Republican. Yeah. There's not a president that has really, truly changed the education system as it should be changed. And I yeah. think until that gets done, we're going to keep people are going to keep bickering. So what I'm trying to do is change it in, with the people I can touch and the people I can reach. And make sure that my kids, my children, and my students are different and better for having met me. That's the goal, you yeah. know? And I think, I mean, every, we're all doing that. You and me are like-minded in that. That's what you try to do. Yeah. That's all we can do, you know? And if you're not doing that, step aside, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's time for you to go, <laughs> yeah. you know? Man, I got I got a little off there. Sorry about that's that. That's right. A little tangent. Yeah. No, no, no. That's good. I like I like that version of Matt. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My students know that too. We can get into some some pretty deep conversations in that percussion studio. Oh, you know, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when we're preparing concerts or when we go out into the community and and we're playing, 
uh, or they experience things at the schools they're teaching at. It's nice mm-hmm. to be able to have conversations about how they can make a difference, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. For sure. I think what I was going to do, I'm going to transfer to kind of the, the final, the random ask questions, which you've done before, but I'm going to give oh, you some, yeah. some different ones. All right. To, um, to listen to, to think about. If you head to, when you do head to Carbondale, if you're visiting family or friends or anything like that, yeah. is there a place there that you have to eat at to be like, I've been to Carbondale? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Quattro's. Deep pan pizza. That's the oh, spot. Right. That is that is the spot. It's the best um, pizza in the world. Wow, I would say. And I have I've not had a, there. I, hey, man, I'm just saying. Like when you think of pizza, and I think of like what a pizza is, and the ubiquitous pizza. I'm not talking about well, Chicago style is better. I'm talking about what a pizza pizza that most people think about as a pizza, which is not. The thin crust St. Louis style, and it's not Chicago. They think of, you know, a medium thick crust pizza with some crust around the edge, yeah. mozzarella cheese, mm-hmm. you know, uh, savory sauce, a red mm-hmm. sauce, and yeah. toppings. Yeah, that's the category I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the flame, you know, stone flame fired, wood fired pizza places. Yeah, yeah. I like those too, but I'm talking about it's middle of the road. What we think of as pizza in America, Quattro's is the best, man. I've never had any different, except for some people in Carmen, they like Pagli eyes, but they don't know what they're talking about. But yeah, Quattro's <laughs> is the spot. Man. Oh, that's, that's, that's <laughs> Yeah, and Quattro's, when I was in, in uh, college down there, we had Wednesdays, it would be if you bought a medium pizza, you got a pitcher for a 99 cents, a pitcher oh, of beer. Oh, my goodness. That's dangerous. So we would go in there and get three medium pizzas and three pitchers of beer. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, come on. That's the thing I noticed about Carbondale, too, from the difference in St. Louis. If we go out for food or drinks, it's so much cheaper. Oh, yeah. Louis. Oh, my gosh. Those college town prices. Boy, give me that all day. Yeah. I don't know how often you've been to Columbia, but it, the, we have Shakespeare's, like, right. Yeah, Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. And it's great. Yeah, yeah. And what's hilarious is that we'll – We'll go there frequently as the because it's right next to the lar where Missouri Theater where all of yeah. our like large ensemble concerts are, and we'll go there or we'll go there just like as a happy hour or something like that. And just it's hilarious. We'll get like these you know these giant drinks for like five bucks. Yeah, <laughs> and you and like literally you you would go to you know like the fancier places and those things would be like fifteen. Oh, absolutely. And I, it just hilarious. Like we always just laugh. Like people, particularly when people come out of town and they visit yeah. us, and we go there, and they're just like, "Wait, how much was the bill?" And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. "Exactly." <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying, man. It's great. And you know, they do that IU too. IU. When my son was going there, yeah. they have Mother Bears right next to where the kind of the music happens on campus. Mm-hmm. Mother Bears is their pizza. So Mizzou is Shakespeare's. You know, it's like that. That's what I'm talking about. That kind of pizza, college pizza. Yeah. I put Quattro's up against all of them. We should have a battle sometime. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 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 in. I'm ready. I'm ready to do yeah. it. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> what is a favorite book? Man, that's so funny because I don't spend a lot of time reading books. I haven't historically. It's not a pastime of mine. 
But if I were going to, if I suggest a book to someone, it's generally one of my friends that I'm talking to that's in relationship troubles and woes. Oh, okay. So the book I suggest is called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Oh, I don't know this. That's the one. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that would be the one that I would suggest to people. You know, books for me generally are about research and music, mm-hmm. and maybe it's a couple of chapters of a book, you know, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's like kind of kind of pilfering what I need out of them. Yeah. I remember reading I Am the Cheese when I was in high school. Have you ever heard of that Oh, one? I think I know that one, yeah. <laughs> and um, that L.A. Vesal one uh, about the Holocaust. Um, oh, saw, Night. Night. And I yeah. saw saw L.A. speak at Triac Auditorium when, when, we were, when I was in high school. That We read the book that year. That mm-hmm. was a, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing experience to talk to the author yeah. of the book that you just read. It's like, whoa, that's deep. Yeah. But yeah, king, warrior, magician, lover. What? So, what is the what does the title mean? Let's put that well. Uh, I mean, it's about um, kind of what we talked about earlier about you know men um, and realizing uh, the history of things that have happened in the planet, mm. which are lots of wars and you know colonization and kind of things like that, and the the animalistic sort of biological. Um, tendencies that history has had and but how we need to be more self-actualized we need to be able to be a king sometimes a warrior sometimes we got to make magic happen and for me that was getting my kids everywhere on time never late you know like it's a lot of things and lover which is caring about uh, about people so it's not just about being the the aggressor Sure. Alpha male, you know, like, well, there's all that talk about alphas and betas. And it's like, come on, man. Like, can we can we get over this yet? We need to be people, you know, and I think that's that's the biggest thing about that as a well-rounded uh, individual on the planet. And I think as as men, a lot of times we're programmed to own. Um, right. And to me, that's not healthy. Or. Maybe conversely, I wonder if that's, this book talks about it, or we're programmed to think that everyone uh, wants our opinion. Aha! Well, there you go. Right? Exactly. And that's kind of owning information, right? And yeah, and that's that's yeah. So yeah, I think that's a good one. We'll leave it at that. All right. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I should. Wow. I should think about the bell as part of the podcast. That might be. Yeah, a- man. You can- <laughs> I did that in my uh, pandemic lectures, you know, just to whenever we had a point to make like ding, ding, you know, and yes. the students loved it. You know, it was just right. one of those things. Anything we could do to bring some levity to that. Oh, situation. yeah, yeah. You haven't heard of Tower of Power? Ding! <laughs> <laughs> you never gotten the lead out? <laughs> yes, that's that's it. That right there. So funny, man. That's That's awesome. Where is somewhere you have not traveled to you still want to get to? Ireland, Scotland. Mm. Yeah. My dad went there and sought out the family crest and all that, you know, stuff. And um, uh, I've had a few friends I know that have gone and just kind of loved it. Um, so that that's at the top of the list for sure. 
I, I'm going back to Cuba soon for sure. I haven't since the pandemic. Um, um, I've thought about traveling to West Africa and Guinea and Mali. Um, haven't pulled that proverbial trigger on that one yet. My most favorite place I ever traveled to was Vienna, Austria. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's Salzburg. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to the Ninth Symphony at Beethoven's grave with the score. Nice. It was beautiful, man. That's awesome. Yeah. That's that's a thing. That's, that's a long sit, too, by the way, also. It's a it? long sit, man. You got to be committed to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's awesome. Yeah, I since we talked, I I, I got to Vienna. Oh, great. It's pretty spectacular. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Have, have you been so- to Prague? I haven't been to Prague. That's on my list too. I've heard Prague is amazing. Did you go? Oh, so I've been to Prague. Yeah, it was the oh, same trip. It was so Prague is incredible. That's definitely. Yeah. I will say Prague is definitely Vienna too. But Prague is definitely a place if you have a significant other. Like yeah. you need to go to Prague. It's just yeah. like you just right. want to be there with someone else. You know. Yeah, and that's the main city that wasn't really affected as much by World War II, so there wasn't as much reconstruction. Right, it's still. You know, Vienna, there were buildings that went down and, all, you know, all that stuff. But I think Prague was the, if I'm not mistaken, almost the only city that wasn't really blown up by World War II. I think you might be yeah. right. Wow. I'll have to check it out. I've heard it, man. It's good. I yeah. like the beer in Europe, too. I like, oh, I'm, of course. I'm all about the European style lagers. And this is my favorite time of year for beer, October and the Oktoberfest. Oh, of course. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's 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 really cool an item where if someone i may have asked this but i'm asking again if you uh meet someone and they you find out they like something whatever it is and you immediately are like we're good i mean bourbon is the first thing that came to mind Mm -hmm. um but i will say that these past few years bourbon has become quite fashionable it has and yes. so I don't think I can say that anymore. I think 2017, 16, probably before, if you yeah. were like committed to bourbon and you knew more than five different kinds of bourbon, that was probably like a connection. Now I see these people online and TikTok and all this stuff. And yeah, yeah we're bourbon connoisseurs. And I actually commented on one of their things one time. How long have you been drinking bourbon? Oh, about two years. And I said, yeah, kind of looks like it. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, what does that mean? And I just got out of there. Like, man, yeah, I yeah. can't do that. Stop, stop, Matt. Back up, back up, Matt. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> These days, I guess it would probably be uh, a love of good music for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we talk and, you know, people know some of the same artists and it's like yeah okay cool or maybe somebody somebody actually knows classic hip-hop they're oh, probably sure. going to be kind of my people you know <laughs> like okay yeah, yeah. cool because the that that i find that that's gone by the wayside even in the pop music class you know like there's yeah. so many people that don't know how hip-hop started or right they only know melly mel because he and eminem had a a uh, diss track going back and forth lately, you know, <laughs> but like, right. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's probably classic, classic hip hop, classic country. I grew up on both of those. I like yeah. those a lot. Yeah. 
Who were the country artists that you were most listening to? Uh, Garth Brooks, Travis Tritt, Alan Jackson. Hank All the classic Virginia. 90s. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, man. It's just, yeah. You know, like I remember when also Appetite for Destruction came out. That changed my life, man. Yeah. And that was yeah. 90, 91. It was like, oh my God. Oh, it was know? earlier. That was like late. That was like 87, 88. Was actually. it 87, 88? Okay. Yeah. 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 See, there you go. I mean, that's kind of the era. Uh, I mean, I've only sung karaoke two or three times in my life, and that's either been Garth Brooks or Billy Joel. Mm. You know? but uh, actually, I think I sing. Slow down, you're doing fine. You can't oh, Vienna. You Vienna. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, come out, Virginia. Don't let me yes. wait. Yeah. Catholic girls start much too late. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, so that old, man, that Billy Joel stuff. Uh, I played Carol King the musical this summer, and I just yeah. loved it because it reminded me of all the music my mom used to play. <laughs> I was just like, oh, yeah. man, there's such great music back then. She's such a good songwriter. Holy cow. Such a good songwriter. Yeah. And so that made that, I think if you didn't know that music, you wouldn't really have as much, nearly as much fun playing right. that. But man, when we got to Beautiful and, you know, Natural Woman, I was just like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, the Shirelle stuff is really good. I, of course, it's all great. Yeah. And honestly... <laughs> I didn't know she wrote. I didn't know she was so prolific. You know, I knew I yeah. knew Carol King for her stuff and a couple of tunes that I knew she had done and the Jim yeah. Croce collabs and or uh, not Jim Croce, um, James Taylor, James Taylor. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the collabs there. Right. But then you know when I started listening to that show, I was like, dang man, she really wrote some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what's so great about Tapestry is you're. I mean, that's basic. It's not a greatest hits, but it pretty much is. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And you're just like, I mean, that's just every track on that is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. No, that's good. What, what, wait, what Garth Brooks do you sing? I the sing Rodeo. Nice. Okay. That's a good one. Um, Thunder Rolls. That's good. Another, yeah. Oh, Colin Baton Rouge. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's kind, <laughs> of, a, that's kind of a like, that's kind of a little more obscure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I didn't know if yeah. you were going to go. So, like the one that I that I would do, even though I don't know the, I would like definitely need to read the lyrics, but I would doubt it would show up. Is um, tearing it up and burn it down. Oh yeah, Love I like that. we we bury the hatchet too. I would sing that one. Oh, that's a good one. That's that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's awesome. Um, what you when you're when you're thinking classic hip hop or um. You're thinking like, are you thinking like Public Enemy, Run DMC, like yeah, Beastie I mean, Boys, I think that, that stuff. W- yeah, so of, I mean, of course, people go back to kind of Sugar Hill Gang and Cool yeah. Herc and all that stuff. But for me, it was when it really kind of exploded with Run DMC, Beastie yeah. Boys, LL, G Rap was in there, and you know, yeah. Def, yeah, when Def Jam started, and and then if you know when the Chronic came out. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, like yeah. that it was just like, oh, if you know the track that Snoop Dogg first emerged on, you know, and the Dog Pound and, yeah. and the original Outcast, Tribe Called Quest, you know. Yes. Oh, Tribe. Yes. Man. Oh. I have a, I should share my 90s hip hop jams with you. On oh, I, I would yeah. really enjoy that, actually. Man, <laughs> it's like, oh, I love it. You know, just play it. Sometimes I just put it in the car. 
and uh, just play it while I'm rolling. Need something different, you know. A lot of times I'm listening to music for gigs, or mm-hmm. you know, what I'm trying to learn these couple new tunes for this. I just joined or just kind of started a Gypsy Kings uh, Havana. Uh, Buena Vista Social Club tribute group yeah. that I'm playing in oh, called sweet. Gypsy Social. You'll see that you'll see that emerge soon, and awesome. that, that's been a lot of fun. Kind of going back to some Havana uh, Buena Vista Social Club, and I didn't listen to a lot of Gypsy King stuff before. Yeah, um, but it's cool. It's you know kind of generic rumba tracio ish mm-hmm. rhythms. Easy yeah. to play along to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Easy for people to latch on. I can see why it was it's popular with a lot of people. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times I'm listening to music on purpose. Right. Um, to learn it uh, and just kind of get the form, but it's yeah. nice when you don't have to do that and you can just enjoy it. Uh, that's awesome, and I I have a similar thing where I, I've created like an '80s and a '90s playlist just like recently, just to kind of. Just putting, yeah. just like, if I thought of something, I just like throw it on the list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And almost, it's funny. the The tune that I almost exclusively start with is uh, "Sublime." What I got. Nice. Love like, me, what I got. Yeah, oh, just like it's just a life is boom. Like when that thing hits, <laughs> it's so good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also made one. We got to change some, uh, text some uh, playlists. Yeah, I did one of like grunge unplugged hits. So like the, Ooh. you know, like Stone Temple Pilots, Temple yeah. of the Dog, Nirvana, Soundgarden, uh, like yeah. all that stuff. But the acoustic versions, oh my Ooh. god, some Ooh. of that stuff is just amazing, man. Yeah, I I like that era too. I mean, that's also nineties, right? Oh yeah, grunge yeah, early nineties. Yeah, I mean Pearl Jam, and you know the early Pearl and, Jam, yeah. Early, early Pearl Jam, for yeah. sure. Feel. <laughs> uh, and Soundgarden was kind of the first group I heard that had, you know, mixed meter stuff, like something in seven. Yeah. Like Outshine, Outshine, or Spoon Man, or, you know, all yeah, these yeah. different stuff. And it was like, damn, people don't even know. They're listening to this on the radio. They have no idea it's in seven, you know? Right, yeah. That was kind of cool. Yeah. Oh. Now I just need to hear Black Hole Sun. Uh, Man, won't you come? Yeah. <laughs> That's a bell awesome. moment for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the bell moment. Sweet. All right, uh, Matt, last question. It's the last. That's the one I ask uh, every, every time, which is a piece of art mo- that, um, you know, books, podcast, YouTube, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. I would say it was an art show. Okay. And I know that your listeners won't be able to see this, but right behind me, you can tell what that is. Uh, maybe. Can you see what that is? I, I've, I'm, I'm turning my head because it's upside down. Let me, uh, yeah, that's the point. Let me show you yeah. why it's upside down. You look through this and then it makes it right side up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Yes. Um, there was a gallery that um, a gentleman I know here in St. Louis put an art show together. Mm-hmm. And it was all uh, mosaics. And when you walk in, they hand you a crystal ball. And all you can't tell what it is until you hold the crystal ball up and look through it. Oh, and, it wow. and then it turns them right side up and huh. you can see. Yeah. And all of the... Uh, art, which is like that. It was on boards and it's all mm-hmm. mosaic, small kind of 
uh, actually built of paint samples. Oh, wow. Uh, black and white paint samples. Yeah. They all had one red dot in them, and they were all people of color that had been killed by police. Oh, wow. And the the red dot was that represented the day of the year because they're all like the same grid, same size, sure. which is 144, 12 by, you know, ish, right? Like 12 mm-hmm. by, or not 144, 12 by 30 or something. It really struck me the moment that I had to look through this crystal ball held by a white hand yeah, to see that this on the art, the, the, the wall, I couldn't make out what it was until I looked through this crystal ball that that was Mike Brown. Oh, yeah. Sandra Bland. You know, like it was just like, oh, my gosh. Brianna Taylor. That was it. That was deep. His name is Travis Sheridan. He's a local artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done he's done some pretty amazing artwork. Yeah. So I mean that was the one for sure. And the last that was like towards the end of the pandemic. So it's the first time we kind of went out to check something out too, you know. So yeah. it was really it was really impactful because of that, because you're out in public, you had to sign up for your time. You were only two of four people that were in the gallery at the you know, at that time. So it was yeah. really intimate. It wasn't like it was a hustle bustle. Hey, what's everybody doing? You know, it was quiet and and you could really soak it in. Yeah. So my partner, Kendra, bought that and mm. hung it on my wall. And that's Mike Brown, you know, uh, from Ferguson. I live in Ferguson. That happened a mile away as the crow flies. Um, and, you know, that's a, it's a real politically charged kind of situation. But again, another one of those situations of whether or not you believe that some of these people were committing crimes when they were shot, it's still an overarching issue that we have to deal with and we have to think, and that's, you know, that's why that movement became so popular. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really get into politics a lot with people, but you know, that's the one man. I appreciate you having me on Pete. Yeah. It's great. It's great to have you back. Thank you, Matt. So great to have Matt Henry back on. I wish him continued success at UMSL and Spectrum and all that he does. And I was thrilled to check in with him at PASIC also. Thanks again, Matt. Related to PASIC, this week's rave is an image and statement made by previous podcast guest and Pete's Mizzou colleague, Dr. Megan Arns. I had a number of folks here at Mizzou ask about my time at PASIC, and what were some of my favorite things I saw there. There was a lot I really liked, but I come back to the same image in my head. My colleague, Megan Arns, while also the Director of Percussion Studies, is also the current Secretary of PAS and is recently a mom for the second time. She's married to a wonderful husband, clarinetist Bill Kalinkos, and the whole family traveled to PASIC for the conference, including their three-year-old daughter, Amelia. While taking them the sights for Thursday's day at PASIC, Megan was walking around in a baby Bjorn with her new daughter, Natalie. She asked one of the students in her studio if she should wear the Bjorn with child for the Thursday evening concert. She was presenting the guest artist for that show, Annie Norell, and her student, said she definitely should. I concurred, as did others. And so, 
Thursday night, in front of the entire PASIC audience, Megan is up on stage wearing her baby Bjorn, holding Natalie, and Mike Burrett asks the audience, how many of them is this their first PASIC? Lots of hands go up, and then he turns around and says something to Megan like, I know one person for whom this is definitely their first PASIC, and Megan goes into a profile to show Natalie in her Bjorn. The crowd cheers, as they should. After that, Megan returned to the stage by herself and introduces herself again while also saying, I'm Megan Arndt, Secretary of PAS, then turns profile again to say, and this is Natalie. And without saying much more about it, makes the case that folks, and in particular moms, in the percussion world should continue to push for well-rounded lives that values all. And that you can be a parent with a young child and still be part of the upper echelon of a major organization. It was fantastic, and that was my favorite moment from PASIC 2023. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for another interview from one of the folks who presented at PASIC 2023. Until then.